The late 1970s and early 80s saw job opportunities being opened up for African Americans. The country was still soothing the fresh wounds of the Civil Rights era, which was a mere 20 years prior. Henry J. Watkins grew up surrounded by the chaos of the times, but embraced the promise of a better America for young black boys. Growing up in Queens, New York, Henry clung to optimism and was audacious enough to dream. And dream he did. By his late teens, Henry was ready to explore the world. His ambition was to be an actor or a broadcast journalist. With his Paul Robeson-toned voice, either was a huge possibility. Always one to pay attention to his surroundings and willing to embrace universal signs, Henry took a position selling ads at his college's radio station. That job shifted the trajectory of his future days. Henry had discovered the wonderful world of advertising and sales. Subsequent decades would see Henry work for several major magazines and entertainment companies. He was stellar at his job and really enjoyed it. Seemingly, it could not get any better. But it would. Henry was tapped to work in the travel industry, using his skill set to promote destinations through media. Now principal of his own company, Henry is one of the most sought-after experts in the business of travel. With a storied career spanning decades, he has as many stories as he does great advice. His knowledge of the business and ability to execute are unmatched. This is the story, thus far, of Henry J. Watkins. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Marketer, advertising guru, and I would say man about town, but man about the world. Henry Watkins, welcome to Planet 30. Oh, God, it's so good to be here with you, Crispin, on Planet 30, and uh, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So tell us, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Springfield Gardens, Queens. Queens is, you know, one of the five boroughs here in New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can tell you that it was the kind of place where it sounds trite, sounds corny, but everybody kind of looked out for each other. You know, if you if you were misbehaving, uh, rest assured, my parents heard about it from the neighbor. <laughs> they didn't see it themselves. And it was just a lovely place to grow up. Uh, there was a great intersection of cultures. You know, we had the Jewish kids that lived in nearby Rustdale Village. Our community was predominantly African American. And we all, you know, went to school together, learned from each other, and and made great friends. And it was, in a lot of respects, an idyllic place to grow up. Awesome, awesome. So, what attracted you um, to the world of advertising? Did did, did the growing up in Queens, among such a diverse group of people, that did, did that inform your consciousness, or what was it about advertising? Well, I'm, I'm glad you framed the question that way by referencing back to your first question about where I grew up. And, and what influence I might have had on what I, I chose in terms of the industry I worked in. Because the reality was, in Springfield Gardens, most of the adults that I saw were, you know, what you'd call working class. You know, they worked for the post office, or my mom worked for what we called, euphemistically at the time, the phone company. Now, you know, now, uh, uh, you know, Ma Bell is, is, is now Verizon. But the point is, there was nobody uh, working in the ad industry in my neighborhood. I didn't even know it existed. The idea 
that people got paid to sell advertising or sponsorships was completely, utterly foreign to me until I got to college. Mm. So what was the dream before advertising? Oh, so, you know, before advertising, I wanted to be an actor or I wanted to be the next Brian Gumbel. You know, I I wanted to be a broadcast uh, journalist. I can see that. That's, you know, I was communications major at Hofstra, spent a lot of my time at WRHU, the station there, and hanging out in the Rathskeller, and uh, that was my, uh, my initial dream. But somehow I got corralled into selling ads for the station and then I discovered this whole thing called ad sales, and I thought, wow, this is kind of cool, too. And that took me on a completely different path. Interesting. You certainly have the voice for broadcast, I, I must say. Um, but Well, thank you. I, I, I enjoyed it. I did a fair amount of voiceover work back in the day. And uh, I would be less than honest if I said I don't occasionally miss being on the radio or on some other medium where I can utilize my voice. But, you know... I think I've used it well over the years uh, working in the tourism industry and the entertainment industry. So you go from Hofstra into radio, attempt broadcast, but then end up in advertising. What were your first days in advertising like? I mean, I mean, you, did you struggle with trying to understand what this new thing was? And, and what made you finally make, you know, how did you finally make the decision uh, to jump into advertising full time and sort of give up on the on the whole broadcast dream. Well, understand. I, I took a very humble path uh, to where I worked my way to in terms of national ad sales. Meaning, I started out after college working for the local penny saver. You know that local paper with all those local deals, mm-hmm. and then there I got a job at Newsday, the the national newspaper out of Long Island. But the difficulty uh, was breaking into uh, the magazine side, which was largely closed uh, to African-Americans uh, in the, the mid-'80s when I uh, entered the, the business. And uh, the way that I broke that barrier is kind of interesting. I'll try to keep this brief. Uh, one of my clients uh, who operated a group of camps uh, had a, a contact, uh, a guy named Herb Schnall. He kept telling me about this guy, Herb. Oh, Herb, Herb can help you break into national magazine ad sales. And I, I, I would sort of half-heartedly listen, Crispin. And then one day, uh, Jesse Rosen, uh, the patriarch of this firm, uh, said, look, you should meet Herb. Herb, Herb. Herb, I think, could really, really help you. So the day that I agreed to do this, coincidentally, that morning I had an interview with Essence Magazine, right? The The... The, the perennial magazine for women of color in the world. And I went in, I interviewed, and they offered me a job. Great, right? And so my plan was to cancel this interview with this Herb Schnall guy. I thought, what do I need that for? I, I got a job at Essence. And I called with the intent of canceling, and, you know, the, the assistant said to me, well, Mr. Schnall's here. You really should just, just come in and talk to him. It's all the way across town in Manhattan. It's pouring raining. And I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be a complete waste of my time. So anyway... I go across town, I get to this guy's office, and I immediately notice there's a lot of dark oak wood paneling everywhere, and a lot of pictures of older dead white guys. I assume they were dead because they looked pretty old. <laughs> and I was ushered into Herb's office by his assistant, and I took a look at the nameplate on his desk, and it said, Chairman of the Board of Times Mirror Magazine. That's correct. Jesse Rosen had set me up for an interview with the chairman of the board of Times Mirror Magazines. And Herb Snow and I hit it off 
he liked me, I liked him. Uh, and he said to me, look, as a Jew, I had a lot of trouble breaking into this business and I want to help others get a leg up, you know, particularly African-Americans. Long story short, he arranged me an interview with several of the publishers at Times Mirror Magazines. Six months later, I got hired at Outdoor Life. That's right, the kid from Queens was working on a publication aimed at people that hunt, fish, and camp, something I was uniquely unqualified for. But I, I, was, I was given an assignment in upstate New York. I did really, really well and got promoted uh, to a new sales manager at Popular Science, and I was on my way. That was kind of my path. Penny Saver to Newsday to meeting the chairman of the board of Times Mirror Magazines, who literally created a path for me. And by the way, by the way, uh, as an important aside, Herb Schnoll didn't just open the door. Once I got hired, which I did on my own, because nobody was really that interested in bringing me on board, he would have lunch with me every single month to see how it was going. That's how much interest he had. Herb later retired to San Diego, and unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But I, I credit that man for, uh, you know, creating a path for me. He got me into an industry that was largely closed uh, to people of color. Incredible, incredible story. Now, you've worked for a plethora of publications since, and uh, networks, etc. I must ask, do you prefer doing uh, work on the entertainment side or the travel side? Well, yeah, I would answer that by saying that I certainly have a great love for both. Uh, but at the end of the day, my passion, my heart, lies with the travel industry. Mm. It lies with the countless people that I've met in the Caribbean and other parts of the world who took me in as one of their own and, and just, you know, introduced me to so many wonderful things. And, you know, with that said, uh, you know, I've had the privilege of working on any, any number of entertainment projects over the years, and they were equally as exciting. Uh, and sometimes the two worlds intersected, Crispin. For example, when I was the publisher at Savoy Magazine uh, 16, 17 years ago, I did an event with the Cayman Island Tourism Board. It was a four-day music festival called Some Kind of Blue. And Keith Sweat was the headliner. We had a number of other great acts. And so in that instance, we were able to get 50, 60 influencers down to Cayman. Uh, they were able to enjoy that incredible destination, but through the prism of music, not just Keith Sweat, but some of the local music out of the region. And so I was happiest when I was able to connect those two worlds and make them work, and that was a prime example of it. What are, what are some of the uh, networks or, or publications within entertainment that you've worked for? Well, Warner Brothers uh, would certainly be, uh, you know, at the top of the, the list. When I uh, was at Warner Brothers, I was for a while in the DC comic division. You might go, well, gee, what was that like? Well, it was very exciting because that division was responsible for producing all the intellectual properties tied to the characters, including a fellow named Batman. And so I got to work on the Batman and Robin film, meaning I secured sponsorships for that film. Unfortunately, that was the Batman, if you recall, that starred George Clooney. It was a bit of a you know bomb, critically as a film. Joel Schumacher took it in a direction that people didn't really love. But you know, whenever there was an artist on any of the Warner Brother labels looking to do something that leveraged that whole comic book world, I was always the guy that got to lead that project. So. When Praz from the Fugees decided that he wanted a, a, a comic book inserted in his next uh, release called Ghetto Superstar, 
uh, I, you know, led that project, met with him several times, and it was fantastic. It was the same with Cisco from Drew Hill, uh, who was just an, an incredible guy, fun guy to work with. And then sometimes there were projects that uh, we discussed that didn't necessarily happen. I had a similar discussion with Brandy's people that kind of went nowhere. But even when it didn't go anywhere, it was fun. And where else could you walk into the company Christmas party and find a fellow sitting by himself looking around, wondering what was going on, and walk up and go, hey, Busta, what you doing, brother? What's going on? Because Busta arrived just sitting in the corner hanging out. <laughs> so uh, that was always fun. And then, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the opportunity that you and I had to work together when you secured the great Anguilla artist Nine to perform at the Uptown Hollywood party. That was big time in L.A., and he came out and killed it, and that was amazing. And so I've just been a very, very lucky guy and and that at times I've been able uh, to create that intersection, in that case, Anguilla and Hollywood and Uptown, and it all worked beautifully. Indeed, indeed. Good times, good times. Very good times, and uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned that Praz album. Um, I quite remember that it was around around nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight. It was uh, Maya, right? Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I do remember the animation. Ah, it's quite interesting. <laughs> and some of the um, the travel companies that you've worked for, because I know you've you've done cruise ships and hotels, and who have you represented? Well, you know, I've worked with all of them. When you say represented, you know, on the ad sales side, um, certainly, you know, virtually every major destination in the Caribbean, uh, Mexico, when I was at Double Down Media, I spent a fair amount of time in Dubai uh, working with the government there and promoting that destination. Uh, I have done uh, work with Canada, South Africa, uh, any number of of these destinations and too many hoteliers uh, to mention. Mm. Uh, a lot of time in Turks and Caicos working with the local government there. Um, in fact, um, probably the biggest event that I ever produced uh, was the Wall Street Boxing Charity Championship. And you might go, what the heck is that? Well, when I was at Double Down, which was a media company that uh, you know, whose core mission was to promote the uh, excesses of Wall Street, this is prior to 2008, before before the big crash, uh, we had an event where we would literally take uh, traders and bankers and have them train for six months and then box each other for charity. And the title sponsor of the second year was the Turks and Caicos Islands, and we had, I don't know, 70 people fly in for that, uh, one of which was supposed to be Michael Misick, but unfortunately they, he was being investigated for for rape charges at the time, and Mike couldn't set foot in the states. But uh, we had, you know, a lot of representation for uh, from from the rest of the island. It was big, big, big time, and we raised, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for charity. So again, another example of media and entertainment intersecting uh, and working well together. It sounds like a very Wall Street thing to do: boxing matches. Yeah, exactly. Hey, believe me, those guys from Goldman Sachs. They hated the guys from the other brokerage firms. It was real. Well, I can imagine. A lot of ego involved on the floor and off. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so, working for all these um, you know, publications and securing ad sales and everything, I have to ask you, in 2020, is traditional media dead? No, it's evolving. I don't think it's dead. Uh, look, I mean, there's no question that uh, the internet and digital media disrupted print 
uh, in a way that uh, nobody could ever have envisioned, uh, at least not early on. That being said, uh, you know, there are still sectors like fashion that rely on it very heavily. There are older individuals that still like that tactile experience of thumbing through um, a magazine. And those print titles uh, or print-based companies that were smart created, you know, companion digital sites that propelled the brand forward. Uh, so dead, no. Uh, reshaped forever, yes. Now, Henry, I know you're a world traveler. You, you mentioned a bunch of uh, destinations before. Where personally, where are some of your favorite places, and why? You know, for a long time, uh, Barcelona sat at the top of my list. I mean, this is a city with uh, you know, a lot of sensuous delights, tapas, sangria, just great music, and just a wonderful walking city. And it remains, you know, one of my favorites. I uh, do. Probably as of now, the the city that impressed me uh, beyond compare is Cape Town, South Africa. Mm. Here, here's a coastal town, right, with a great waterfront, 40 minutes from world-class wine country. They've got a cuisine scene that's com- comparable to Paris and New York. And, of course, there's a strong cultural connection. Well, obviously, our, our people of color who came from Africa came largely from the West Coast. There's still, nevertheless, uh, a, a strong cultural tie there. And as it relates to their history of apartheid and uh, what went on pre-civil rights here in America. And so I just found the, the people in South Africa to be incredibly welcoming, and I can't wait to get back. You know, for sheer beauty, hard to beat, the Caldera in Santorini, Greece. It's one of those places, Christian, uh, where you're sitting and you're looking at this caldera, this water inlet, and it actually looks better than the retouched photos. That's just how impressive it is. And I would be remiss, you know, if I didn't mention some of my favorite places in my favorite region of the world, uh, the Caribbean. Uh, your home country of Anguilla has always been uh, one of my favorites for its beautiful beaches, and it's just incredible, classy hotels. Uh, the same is true of Turks and Caicos. And anybody that's a lover of music, you got to throw Mr. Marley and Jamaica in there. You know what I'm saying, man? Yes, indeed. <laughs> Home of reggae, home of reggae. There you go, absolutely. For sure. Now, over the years, you you went from the entertainment space. Well, you were working in both at the same time, and they would collide. However, you I can hear the fervor in your voice when it comes to, to travel. Was there a, a decision? Was there a strategy behind moving more into travel, or does this sort of happen organically? You know, the transition from more entertainment to to, uh, travel? I'll I'll answer that this way. If we go back to the origins of this conversation, my my childhood days in Springfield Gardens, Queens, you know, I grew up in a home where any given weekend my mom was playing Aretha or or Al Green or Earth, Wind & Fire, and then the guys next door, the the, older cats, 16, 17 years old, they were introducing me to Sly and the Family Stone and Elton John and so I, I, you know, I always had an appreciation um, for music in particular, and then later, you know, TV, movies, and so forth in terms of the entertainment space. I did not grow up traveling. My family really didn't have the economic means uh, to do so. I didn't leave the country until I was 17. I went to Jamaica in pursuit of love. But that's, another, that's a story for a different podcast, you know. <laughs> uh, one August in Jamaica didn't, didn't work out, but I got to see the country. 
but you know, when I started in the industry, my first job was at Modern Drive magazine. I don't know if you knew that. I worked the honeymoon market. And um, I share that to simply say that this idea of being paid to travel from Anguilla to Barbados to Puerto Rico and then go to a trade show in London and Berlin uh, in pursuit of ad dollars uh, for that particular publication, this was a dream come true. This hmm. was a dream come true for a kid from Queens. And so I think in the end, as much as I love the world of entertainment, nothing, nothing has touched my heart and my soul as much as the idea of going to a new destination, connecting with new cultures and experiencing that for the first time. And as you well know, making new friends and business associates, it's just hard to beat. Now, with that said, every once in a while when I was at, say, Uptown and Puffy was in the, uh, in the office or the late Andre Harrell, I kind of watched what those guys are doing and go, wow, man, they're really doing it. And, and, and I, I loved it, but I think at the end of the day, um, I'm a tourism guy. Gotcha. Love the love the answer. Um, what what is? Tell us your specific job within the industry. You know, for somebody who's aspiring and listening to this, um, what what what's your day to day like? Yeah. So these days, because I'm operating uh, my own consultancy firm that advises tourist boards and hoteliers and represents other media companies like Honeymoons.com. My day, pre-pandemic at least, was spent largely getting trips set, traveling to destinations, meeting with ministers and directors of tourism. When I was not doing that, I was on the phone researching, just trying to figure out a, a path to help these folks market uh, their properties and their destinations. But, you know, the, the real concrete answer to your question is it's kind of a, an amalgam of phone calls, a lot of email, you know, that seems to be the chosen means of communication for most of us uh, these days. And believe it or not, a lot of time on social media, um, meaning at any given time, there could be a post from Hayden Hughes or Ralph Higgs, the Minister of Tourism and Turks, and I'm responding to that or supporting it or in some way using it as a platform to stay in touch. So that's kind of typically, you know, how I'm spending my time when I'm not on an airplane or checking into some new hotel or resort. So, Henry, um, why has travel become so much, uh, so popular within the past 20 years that you've noticed, I've noticed, uh, and this is just from my observation, sort of a surge in everything travel? Yeah, so, you know, again, the Internet, the, the rise of, the internet has really made the world seem a lot smaller and certainly more accessible. And, you know, it's just as easy to, if you're in North America, it's just as easy to book a trip to Mallorca or as it is to book a trip to the Bahamas. And so that's fueled a lot of it. The, the ability to research and plan a trip is, you know, just never, never been easier. It, it's just really, you know, that simple. And then, um, you know, the surge in, in, in travel among specific ethnic groups. You know, take African-Americans, for example, uh, $56 billion spent uh, last year. That's an all-time high. Wow. And, it, you know, it's reflected by the explosion of websites and blogs and influencers who are, you know, seemingly devoted to promoting travel among uh, people of color. And they're filling a void, uh, frankly, that the general market uh, has kind of ignored uh, for years, um, this group of travelers and their spending power 
And uh, you know, there's a number of things to consider when you're marketing to specific ethnic groups that, again, are often not, not paid attention to by the general market. And so now with that kind of information out there, it's fueled record levels of travel among African-Americans, Latinos, the LGBTQ market. Uh, these are all segmented markets, but markets that have enormous spending power, and they play a significant role in, in making travel you know, so popular over the last two decades. It's interesting because I, I've noticed uh, many Instagram accounts, you know, Black Travel Noir, and, and I mean... Yeah, Black Nomad, and... Yeah, and Black... Old- Black girls who travel, black men who travel. Yes, there are there's so many. There's so it, many it, of them, but they, they seem to be be um, tastemakers in terms of travel. I mean, w- many many people refer to you know rich kids of Instagram, but we don't all own a G five as yet. <laughs> so, yes. you know, the black travel uh, blogs seem to be like 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 I said, they, they, they're becoming tastemakers. As Afri- a lot of African Americans are, well, in music. You're seeing the same thing sort of in travel. It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's an aesthetic that's propelled our culture in terms of driving interest, as you mentioned, in entertainment and sports most notably. And I think it's fair to say you're seeing a similar kind of impact uh, in travel and tourism where we go to a place like Dubai or the Maldives. Uh, those seem to be two particularly popular spots among uh, young African-American millennials. And it takes on a different kind of import in terms of, uh, you know, being a hot destination for the markets overall. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I think there is some truth uh, to the comparisons that you drew between our, our, our ability to use music and other forms of entertainment as a driving force to influence the larger culture. And we see, yes, a similar thing beginning to happen with travel. Mm. You know, you mentioned the, uh, the Maldives. Um, what are some of the other hot destinations that people were uh, venturing out to, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, 2018, 2019. Uh, what were some of the destinations you were seeing people asking about and actually going to? Well, you know, for a long time, uh, Spain just was, you know, the, the, the hot place to go. I mentioned earlier my, my affection for Bar- Barcelona. Uh, but a lot of people ignored, really kind of slept on, uh, that small country next door called Portugal. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's only been the last few years that uh, Portugal has become a really hot des- destination, and not just Lisbon, but Porto uh, as well. And so uh, people started to look beyond the obvious. And, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't throw Iceland in the mix because it's been a kind of a hot destination for more than a minute here, but seems to be holding on. Uh, to its popularity, particularly during this pandemic, because it's really uh, the, the, the only major European destination that's not on the mainland and so not as affected by uh, the coronavirus. Uh, and then, more importantly, it just has a, a lot to offer in terms of sightseeing, nightlife, and so forth. Uh, you know, within the Caribbean region, uh, besides Anguilla, which is always held steady with the elite set, uh, you know, again, Turks and Caicos continues to be uh, enormously uh, popular, and uh, I, I think it's hard to have this conversation without re-mentioning uh, the resurgence of the Maldives, uh, hugely popular. Um, I found um, more and more people are heading further and further away from home, uh, so countries like Vietnam and Laos 
are now in the consideration set for a lot of people. Those are two countries that I greatly enjoy. And so I think that's kind of what you're looking at in terms of the hotspots uh, this year and going forward. Quite interesting. I'd like to, I'd, I'd probably say that um, after the Beanie Man and Bounty Killer Clash, Jamaica's definitely going to see a surge. Uh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> I mean, Jamaica has so many things going forward. You know, I've often referred to it as my my second home uh, because, it was, again, was the first place I, I gravitated to or traveled to when I left the U.S. at the age of 17. But hard to beat Jamaica for its, its food, its music, and its topography and the friendliness of its people. It has its problems. You know, it is a genuine third-world nation with all those kind of third-world economic problems. But uh, that being said, there's a richness to the culture that is uh, enormous, uh, and one only has to look as far as its musical influences to begin to understand that. Mm. Here's an interesting question for you, travel-wise. Um, entrepreneurship is, an, is at an all-time high. And um, people are venturing into Airbnb, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there are some people who have dreams of owning their own hotel or guest house. Now, if, if, if someone were to start small, let, let's, let's take the Caribbean, for example. Uh, I know it's one of your favorite regions, so let's use that for, uh, for reference. If I were to start, or if someone were to start a guest house in the Caribbean... Uh, what are some of the must-have amenities that travelers are looking for nowadays? Well, I don't think there's any question that technology is driving so much of what we find to be important in our lives. You know, people talk about disconnecting, but the reality is nobody wants to be someplace where there isn't good Wi-Fi, right? You know, people, people have lost their minds when they can't connect. They can't get on their phones. So, you know, these so-called smart homes are becoming increasingly uh, important. You know, this, this idea that, uh, you know, you, you, you have this home that sort of uh, takes into account your personalized needs and services and the lights going on and off and the Wi-Fi strong and you can just do everything easily because of technology. And the, the beauty of it is, you know, it, it's less and less expensive. So even the B&Bs or a bed, you know, a bed breakfast or uh, someone in the, the Airbnb uh, ecosystem can often incorporate these kinds of uh, components for very little money. Uh, and so that's become important. I mean, yeah, of course, you know, you want to have nice toiletries in the bathroom, but frankly, you can bring that with you. But the technology is really something that uh, has to be organically there. So I think that is becoming increasingly important for anybody owning and operating a guest house or resort. I remember um, years ago in the 1980s, in Angola, there was a, a hotel that, you know, they, the, the pride of the hotel was that they didn't have TVs in the rooms. Right. <laughs> you know, it was one of those things, oh, you, you, you came here to relax. You came here to read books and sleep. So, you know, they're, they're big advertising. We don't have TVs in our rooms. I'd be hard-pressed to see someone that would book a hotel without Wi-Fi and a TV in the room nowadays, you know? I can tell you the few times I've been in a hotel that didn't have a TV, I thought I'd lose my mind. <laughs> um, except the last time it was in St. Lucia. I won't mention the hotel, but I had my laptop, so, you know, I was able to log on to a bunch of stuff there. But no, I, I think unless you're looking for kind of an aesthetic experience, which some people are, you know, you, you, you want that kind of 
uh, almost monk-like experience short of that. Uh, people say that, but I think at the end, they want the technology to at least be accessible and available if they need it. Mm-hmm. What is the uh, largest travel group nowadays? Is, is it the the baby boomers? Is it the millennials? Who's traveling the most? It, it depends on, on what context you're asking the question. If you're talking uh, in terms of interest and experiences, it's certainly the millennials who are leading the charge on things like volunteerism and who consistently say when queries that they value experiences over owning things and spend a greater percentage of their income on travel than any other group. In terms of raw numbers, it's, it's you know, the, the boomers, the folks who are in a life phase where they've got more money uh, to spend. They just don't take as many uh, trips, uh, and nor, nor do they take the kind of trips that the millennials take. But I, I think it's, it's essentially those two groups demographically that are fueling much of the growth in travel these days. What are what what is each group looking for when they travel to resorts? Um, you know, like what's the difference? What type of resort would would the uh, baby boomer go t- toward, and what type of resort would the um, millennial go toward? Well, if we're if we're operating on the premise that we're dealing with a successful boomer, they're looking for what you and I would describe as a typical luxury experience. You know, probably a four or five star resort or hotel with all the amenities and bells and whistles, uh, access to great cuisine, and, you know, tremendous service that makes them feel like, you know, they're the stars that they believe that they are at that point in their life. Uh, Millennials, in contrast uh, to that, as I said earlier, uh, for them it's much more about the experience, the people, the culture, um, how can they give something back when they're there, not all of them, but many of them. And so that doesn't necessarily equate to being in a five-star hotel. Um, that isn't to say that they're necessarily looking to stay in a hostel, but uh, the hotel is secondary to the experience. The resort is, is secondary uh, to the people and, and what they can do while they're there. So psychographically, they're very, very different uh, audiences and how you cater to them differs greatly. And by the way, not every hotel or resort is equipped to cater to both. Some are just organically better fits for millennials and others better fits for boomers and everybody else in between. Interesting. What do you, what do you enjoy most about working in, within the travel space? Well, you listen, I, I don't think there's any question that if you go down my list of friends, a wide percentage of them I've met in the process of traveling or working with the travel industry. So it's certainly been the people at the top of the list. On the other hand, uh, if you harken back to one of my first trips to St. Lucia, and I stepped out of my hotel and I had to go to an appointment at a nearby hotel and they suggested that the best way to get there was on water. And what do you mean? Well, I was led down to the beach, beautiful view of those St. Lucian Tetons, uh-huh. and sitting out in the water 30 feet away, was a young man who appeared to be all of about 15, and he was commandeering a very colorful, colorful uh, vessel. It, it was a rowboat, really is what it was. And I was expected to roll up my pants, wade out into the water, hop into this rowboat, and be transported to my next appointment. And that's exactly what I did, Crispin. And somewhere two minutes into that ride, as I was gazing out of those beautiful Caribbean waters and those Grand Tetons, I thought to myself, God, they're paying me to do this? This is incredible. <laughs> so it's the experiences and, and, and just being in these incredible destinations that's made uh, working in the travel sector 
uh, so gratifying. And I mean, a few bucks along the way, that helps too. So conversely, what what's the uh, toughest thing about the travel industry? Well, oddly enough, it's the travel. It, it is showing up at an airport for a flight that's been delayed for the second time. And then you get on board and the majority of the people on board are not professional travelers. And so boarding is a pain in the you know what. And uh, the aircraft is hot and you're tired and all you're thinking about is I, I got meetings, I, I, you know, I'm gonna be late. Um, and so it's just all of that, the, the constant checking in and out of hotels and trying to figure out, you know, how to, when you're gonna work out and do you have the energy and, and the and, and the motivation to do it because you're tired. Uh, so it's, it's, it's oddly enough the travel itself. I mean, <laughs> you gotta take the good and the bad, I guess. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> For people aspiring to be in the travel industry, um, tell us three key things that they should probably know or prepare themselves for um, to get into the industry. You mentioned earlier, you know, the space was limited at the, at the time in the 80s for people of color. Um, I'm sure that has changed now, but, you know, other than things like that, what, how, how, would, how would one prepare oneself? Uh, to mentally to, to well, enter I think the... some of what you would do would be applicable to any endeavor in life and, and I believe that the people that succeed at the highest levels have a real genuine curiosity about the world and how it works and about people and so they're constantly asking questions and reading uh, I'm a big believer in taking the Socratic approach to life I walk in the room and I'm not interested so much in talking about myself like I'm doing in this podcast uh, but I'm interested in asking a myriad of questions so that I can learn about the people in the room, so that I can learn how to best work with them, so that I can learn more about, you know, my own body of, of knowledge. So a curiosity about the world key, right? And then in line with that, read, analyze, understand as much as you can about the world of business as humanly possible. Now, now that may seem, you know, axiomatic to most people, you know, basic, but it's extremely important. Um, it's just one of those things that you need to do to prepare yourself. And this may sound like an odd answer, to prepare yourself, prepare yourself. And what I mean by that is know as much as you can about the business, the people, their, their concerns, their shortcomings, their successes as you can before you initiate any, any official business uh, discussions. That's what a real uh, hardened professional does. Mm, indeed, indeed. So you seem to have a knack for marrying different aspects of industries and and um, joining them together. I know that you ventured into fashion for a little while. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, so that happened at, at, at a time when, as we were discussing earlier, the internet had completely disrupted print. This is when I was the publisher at Uptown. Uh, magazine, and I, and I thought this is a time for me to begin to diversify, look for other revenue streams outside of media, outside of travel, outside of entertainment. And so, in partnership with Kevin Stewart, whom I met when he was the creative director at Vanguard Media, uh, that that is the company that published Savoy Magazine when I was the publisher, uh, we launched Old School Shirt Makers. And Old School Shirt Makers was designed to be a company that produced American-made goods at a reasonable price point that's 
stood for quality, but also had a swag that said, yeah, this is, this is, this is on the urban tip for sure. And uh, we launched the company. It did not meet the level of success that I'd hoped for. You know, I, I learned uh, a very valuable lesson there, which is if you're going to partner with someone, make sure you really vetted them carefully. Uh, let's just say that my partner had some serious issues that compromised our ability to succeed, not the least of which was uh, completely destroying and sabotaging a meeting we had with the co-founder of FUBU, uh, J. Alexander Martin. We walked into a meeting with him, and it became quickly contentious between himself and Kevin, and that went down the tubes, and there were some issues with misappropriation of dollars. Uh, and that's all I'll say about that. But uh, you know what? Even your failures in life, uh, you can learn a lot from. And so, as I said earlier, I learned some very valuable lessons uh, from that, and it certainly won't be uh, the last time I make a foray into a new industry, or at least a new industry to me. So, Henry, how is the travel industry dealing with the fallout from COVID-19? Well, you know, I think the travel industry, like any industry that values the relationship with its consumer base, needs to be as transparent as possible on these key issues, you know, around safety and health. And, and I think for the most part, we, we've seen that, uh, you know, regular communication that softly promotes uh, the idea of future travel. You know, we've seen destinations and hotels, for example, hosting on IG virtual cocktail parties or, or concerts, right? Um, that's become big now whether it's Bounty Killer and Beanie Man or, you know, uh, Erica Badu and Jill Scott, these kinds of things are, are good. Uh, but, you know, the virtual tours of the destinations, all, the, all these kinds of things are, are, are important in, in terms of just reminding folks about the, your, your, the essence of your brand and why it matters to them. Uh, but, of course, paramount in dealing with the fallout from COVID-19 is the ability to uh, assure or reassure the public that you've put in place the necessary health protocols uh, to ensure that their visit's going to be safe and productive. And, and so, you know, to that end, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, the airlines, the hoteliers, uh, they, they're all putting in new protocols to make people feel more comfortable when they come through. Uh, you know, we see the evolution of how we think this is going to start to unfold. Uh, it would appear that uh, domestic travel is going to recover first, uh, followed by international travel. I think uh, road trips are going to be initially, uh, you know, quite quite popular. And then, uh, you know, tra travel within your borders. Uh, if you are, you know, if you're, if you're sitting on the European continent, you're probably going to get on a train and go from Berlin to Prague before you fly. And then, you know, the last uh, area that will recover will, will, will be international with the opening of borders, et cetera. But, um, you know, I think uh, some of the announcements we've seen lately, Crispin, uh, suggest that uh, the, the travel industry is ready to deal with the fallout from COVID-19. Uh, the airlines have, have announced new health protocols, everything from wearing a mask to creating as much social distancing as you can have on an aircraft, on a, you know, aluminum tube. Uh, but the hotels, you know, are going with max 50% capacity, whole new cleaning protocols for the rooms, and touchless check-in so that you can bypass the desk. And um, I, I think, you know, uh, I'll tell you, Dean Fenton, the director of tourism for Antigua and Barbuda, said something to me that struck a responsive chord. And he said, you know, Henry, I think the smaller boutique hotels, uh, you know, the ones that are serving uh, plated meals as opposed to big buffets, 
are going to have an easier time of recovering than some of the bigger hotels, assuming they've got the financial resources that withstand, you know, this shutdown we've had for the past few months. Because I think it speaks to this need people are going to want to have to be someplace that's quiet, that doesn't have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And you don't have to worry about, you know, some guy from Wisconsin sneezing on your salad. So, uh, you know, the travel industry is a resilient industry. Uh, they survived Ebola, Zika, a host of hurricanes. I don't have to tell you, uh, and my Caribbean people in particular, very strong stock. They'll be back. They will be back. Very great. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting, um, scenario <laughs> that this COVID has presented. So, oh. you know, I, I think, I think people are excited to travel again. Um, people have been home for months at this point. And, um, yeah, people are, have cabin fever, and they're ready to go. <laughs> There's a lot of pent-up demand out there. And, look, um, it's not a monolithic world. There'll be some people that are terribly conservative, and they won't go anywhere until there's a vaccination. And then there'll be, as you said, people that are just anxious to get out and do something, including, you know, traveling again. So let me ask you this, Henry. After all the things you've accomplished... What's your ultimate goal? What's that one thing that you're still holding on to that, you know, I really want to accomplish this? So imagine that it's a few years down the road and I'm thinking about uh, gradually removing myself from the rat race of running around the world uh, for business purposes. I would want to return to my original goal of being an actor, do some local theater, uh, not have the pressure of it being uh, successful commercially. If it was, that's great. You know, late in life, I became the next Morgan Freeman. That'd be fine with me. But, you know, uh, it would just be the idea of being on stage and, and living my truth in that regard. Now, to be sure, uh, Kristen, when I stepped off that stage, I'd like to board a plane, take a trip around the world, go to some uh, really, you know, fascinating places, and hopefully leave each one of those communities, you know, better than I found it. That's the way I want to go out, sir. Love it, love it, love it. Now, this is a segment I like to call The Planet is Yours. I strap on my spacesuit, jump off the planet, and let you have the reign of Planet 30. Whatever you want to say to the audience, go ahead. Well, I think it's very difficult to to respond to that question uh, outside of the context of the global health crisis that we're experiencing now because it's really taken over every aspect of our life. And so I I would want to say this uh, to our local governments, to the states uh, here in the U.S. and to the federal governments all around the world, uh, there's the need to act as one, to act in unison, uh, to get us through this pandemic. Uh, For those that have divided in the states along red and blue uh, political lines, uh, some of whom are demanding their their rights to not shelter and get out, and others who are insisting their rights are being encroached upon by folks who are heading out without a mask and congregating more than groups of 10, to understand that there's a common ground that we all have to seek in this, and that common ground should not be dictated by politics or ideology, but it should be dictated by the need to care for each other. Uh, we're not going to survive uh, as as a uh, population, as a as a world community, if we don't take that uh, to heart. 
And I think that type of cooperation is especially needed in, in the Caribbean because, you know, so many of those island destinations, as you know, uh, depend on tourism uh, for their survival. It's the lion's share of their GDP. And so, you know, in that regard, my company, the Watkins Media Group, LLC, we're, we're deploying our entire team. And for that matter, the majority of our resources to help uh, those who are entrusted with uh, protecting the tourism interests of their respective countries uh, navigate through this new normal. Uh, we are in, as we said at the top of this discussion, unprecedented times, and unprecedented times call for unique and creative solutions. And so I would encourage each and every person uh, to be compassionate, to be thoughtful, uh, and to be as loving as possible as we encounter our friends and neighbors. And in the words of my brothers and sisters in the region and in Jamaica, one love. That's what we need. Couldn't have said it better. It sounds like a little bit of politicians might, uh, might erupt from inside, you know? <laughs> well, you know, if, if it were not for a myriad of things that would be heavily scrutinized in my personal life, perhaps, but that's a tough road to go down these days because everything is an open book with the advent of the digital camera and the internet. Oh, so please, there you go. Please believe we just, <laughs> how do we How do we get in contact with the uh, Watkins Media Group? How do we follow Henry Watkins on social media? Is there a website? Let me let let, let everyone know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Watkins Media Group Travel dot com. Uh, of course, you know I can be reached at Henry at Watkins Media Travel dot com. I encourage people to reach out to me directly. I answer every inquiry within time and generally within forty eight hours, if not sooner. And uh, I am regularly can be found uh, on social media uh, at Henry Watkins uh, Media Travel. And so um, whichever your chosen medium is, reach out to me, connect. I'm here to help. Henry Watkins, I can't thank you enough for joining me here on Planet 30. It's been my pleasure. I look forward to doing it again. All right. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com.